Hey everyone, all around this watered world, Laszlo Montgomery again with the 94th episode of the China History Podcast. We're going to finish off this whole Zhenghe overview and take a look at Gavin Menzies' contribution to the historical discourse about this time, early 15th century, late Middle Ages to pre-European Renaissance. Now I have to admit, before wading into the world of Gavin Menzies, I had no idea who he was or about the details he espouses in his two books. I believed they had something to do with Zhenghe's fleets, discovering America, or something like that. Truthfully, though, I passed these books in a hundred airports and bookstores around the U.S. and Asia. I knew there was one called 1421, the year China discovered the world, or discovered America, and a sequel that came out later called 1434, the year a magnificent Chinese fleet sailed to Italy and ignited the Renaissance. For whatever reason, it didn't quite pique my interest enough or intrigue me enough to buy them. I knew nothing about any controversy over his findings. When I began thinking about doing a series on Zhenghe, I figured, why not go and read Gavin Menzies' two books and then bring them into the story? So, last Hong Kong trip, I picked them up and did a thorough skim job of both. Many of you have perhaps already read 1421 and 1434. The evidence presented is very, very compelling. And besides all that, the story of the whole period is also presented in a fine way, I must add. Both volumes remain staples at any international airport newsstand or bookshop. 1421 came out in 2002, and Gavin Menzies followed up in 2008 with 1434. I checked out everything I could find on Gavin Menzies and what his side of the story was and what his detractors said. This guy has had everything and everything thrown at him. I read his book as well. I was convinced if all he said was true. Enough said. I was on board. He had me. Columbus didn't discover America, and the same could be said about Cook in Australia. Then I started checking around and listening to what all the naysayers said, and then suddenly I wasn't so sure anymore. What seemed factual became arguable. In fact, one of Mr. Menzies' principal detractors, someone named Captain P.J. Rivers, Captain Rivers' name is followed by six acronyms for a bunch of things and punctuated at the end with the words Master Mariner. So I figured he must know something about the sea. He runs a website called www.1421exposed.com. So you can figure out right away what he thinks of the book. He called Gavin Menzies a modern Mandeville, referring to the 14th century legend, Sir John Mandeville, who wrote an eponymous book of his four years of travel beginning in 1357. No way to tell if it was real or not, but the book was wildly popular in its day, and the stories are entertaining and highly unbelievable. He goes on to say about Menzies that he tells of his own life in a Walter Mitty manner, with a touch of Munchausen, referring to the Famous traveling baron, immortalized by Terry Gilliam in his 1988 film, he finishes off saying, quote, This entertaining amateur detective novel, masquerading as revisionist history, may well prove to be the Piltdown Man of literature, but should only be classified as fiction. Piltdown Man, you all know, from early man fossils discovered in Piltdown, West Sussex, 
These bones and the claims they made were in November 1953 exposed as a fraud after 40 years. Wow, strong words, Captain Rivers. There's quite a cacophony out there pointing fingers at this inaccuracy and that supposition and the authenticity of these maps or Mr. Menzies' interpretation of these maps and what certain things meant. And There's multiple cracks in the foundation that Gavin Menzies rests his case. I would not discourage anyone from buying the books. If for nothing else, the books offer a nice, easy-to-read history of the early Ming Dynasty. If you're interested in navigation and how the ancient mariners used to do it before longitude was figured out, it's fascinating on that level, too. And Mr. Menzies is delightfully quite expert in all manners of astro-navigation. If you're just plain old in love with the ideas of sailing the seven seas, it's a great read for you, too. You know, revisionism is such a dirty word in so many cultures and civilizations. But you know how it is. History is always written by the victors, or at least it used to be, and certainly was in the times of Zheng He and the early Ming. In 1480, when Confucianists burned all traces of Zheng He's logbooks, records, and maps, they destroyed the hope that later generations might know the truth about what happened. In doing this, they may have not only denied Zheng He his rightful place in history, but also denied China an additional boost to their overall world stature. That's the most frustrating thing about this whole story. There are all these signs that Zheng He's voyages were bigger than we know. But despite all the claims of where he went, what he did, at the end of the day, these records have not surfaced and perhaps never will. Gavin Menzies or no Gavin Menzies, the Chinese in Zheng He's day certainly had the wherewithal to discover the remaining parts of the world that, you know, had been unseen by visitors from far away. Whether they did or not remains debatable, but even hampered by not knowing how to calculate longitude, the Chinese could have done everything, Menzies claims. There's just no hardcore, undeniable evidence that they did so. After something becomes the accepted version based on the combined research of an army of historians, anthropologists, scientists, and archaeologists all over the world, People take it seriously when out of nowhere something of this magnitude, like Gavin Menzies writes about, you know, comes to the fore. If what this book purports to say is all true, that is a game changer in all respects as far as, you know, how we look at those years of exploration in the latter half of the 15th century and into the 16th. And rather than celebrating Columbus as the discoverer of the new world and declaring holidays in his honor, we should be celebrating Zheng He instead. And China, based on this achievement, might stand even taller in their shoes than they do now. If Columbus, Magellan, and da Gama were standing on the shoulders of giants, then everyone ought to know about this. To come out and say Columbus discovered America based on maps that were written by Zheng He's map makers long before 1492, well, that's quite a claim. For something that big, there had better be some rock solid evidence, and the evidence better be backed up by the academic and scientific establishment. So I haven't heard a loud enough roar to sit up and take notice and hop on this bandwagon. When I hear something that's a little more convincing and conclusive and maybe front page headlines, then I'm there. 
I just don't see any groundswell whatsoever saying anything different than the established order of things, and that is Zheng He's fleet never sailed past the Cape of Good Hope. It ended there, or at least on the East African coast. Nonetheless, it's a great story, and Gavin Menzies, uh, I watched this uh, History Channel or Discovery program, I'm not sure, I, and I couldn't help but to notice over and over, he's a dead ringer for Dick Cheney, glasses and all. I put side-by-side -side photos of them on my website. One thing's for sure, Mr. Menzies sure has done well creating his own little industry and promoting himself. Anyways, time will tell if the conclusions raised in his books are indeed the piltdown man of literature, as one of his detractors says. 1421 was the year of the sixth voyage, the final voyage of the Yongle Emperor's reign. All his luck was about to run out. The emperor would pass from the scene in 1424 after a series of bruising and calamitous setbacks. According to the official version of events, the fleet set sail in March of 1421, right after the new Forbidden City was opened in Beijing, then going as far as the Swahili coast, and then they returned to China a little more than three years later in 1424. The Yongle Emperor was dead, and his son, now the Hongxi Emperor, had sent out the call that all ships had to return to China at once. After such a spectacular voyage, you'd think they'd at least get a hero's welcome. But the mood... Now in Beijing, after the excesses of Zhu Di, the Yongle Emperor, no one was in the mood to talk about these fleets and the exorbitant costs to build the Forbidden City that only stood for a short while before being struck by lightning and burned to the ground. Gavin Menzies' version of events is that after they finished in Africa, they split up and went on to sail to North and South America, Australia, and the polar extremes in the Arctic and Antarctic. After the fleet resupplied at their base in Malacca, they sailed up the strait to Samudera, and there, according to Gavin Menzies, they split up. Four eunuch admirals led the four fleets, Hongbao, Zhou Man, Zhou Wen, and Yang Qing. There was also a smaller fleet that was commanded by Zheng He. Uh, Zheng He took care of you know, sending all the envoys back home, and then he himself headed back to China, arriving in November 1421. As for the three admirals, they finished up whatever business they had and all rendezvoused off the coast of Mozambique at Sofala and headed south towards the Cape of Good Hope and the southern Atlantic Ocean. There, the winds and currents would take them up the west coast of Africa to the Cape Verde Islands, and then they'd travel west using the same currents that would carry Columbus some 70 years later. There, Menzies says, the admirals split up the fleet. Zhou Wen sailed north, passing through the Caribbean and up the coast of the USA. Hongbao and Zhou Man went south, sailing down the east coast of South America, past Brazil and Argentina to the Falkland Islands, and then on to Patagonia. Admiral Hongbao, from there, sailed on to Antarctica and Australia. On the way, no small feat, he discovers the Strait of Magellan before the man himself did in 1520. Furthermore, we are led to believe that when Magellan sailed through the strait, he already had a map that came from the Chinese that allowed him to safely navigate that notorious rough spot in the oceans. 
And Mr. Menzies scatters all kinds of interesting things throughout his books, such as claims that Spanish ships later on in the 16th century would come upon Chinese wrecks off the Chilean coast and elsewhere, and that a multitude of animals and foods were brought to these faraway places that brought revolutionary changes for the better to all these beneficiaries in North and South America, Australia, and Africa. So Hong Bao makes it through the strait, hangs a louis, sailed west of Tierra del Fuego, past the Shetland Islands, and south towards the Antarctic Circle. And there, in 1422, cartographers and surveyors aboard one of the vessels charted the coast of, well, part of Antarctica. This made it onto the famous Peri Reis map, now located in the Topkapi Museum in Istanbul. Well, Gavin Menzies vehemently says Perry Reese got the info about Antarctica from Chinese sources. Others have said that chunk of land depicted in the map ain't Antarctica. So once again, no San Ren Changhu, as far as I'm concerned. From Antarctica, Hongbao's fleet sailed north to warmer climes to Australia, and they landed at Bunbury, south of Perth, the Aboriginal Australians supposedly carry stories to this day of these yellow men who once visited there. They went north from Perth into the familiar waters of the Western Ocean, and there they blended in with the hundreds of other vessels involved in the spice trade, and after a long stop in Malacca, they headed home, arriving back in China October 22nd, 1423. Now, Zhou was still sailing in the high seas. As Hongbao was heading home, Zhou Man, after surveying the west coast of South America, was crossing the Pacific and zeroing in on the east coast of Australia. The fleet sailed three months with the current that took a straight shot across the Pacific and carried them just north of present-day Sydney. And Gavin Menzies said the Chinese were already familiar with Australia and had been there before. The visits by Man and Hongbao were merely follow-up missions for more detailed charting of the coast. From Australia, they sailed to New Zealand, stopping on remote Campbell Island first. From there, they sailed back to the Australian coast, past the Great Barrier Reef, and to the north of Australia, surveying you know, everywhere they went. Wherever these ships landed, there was a danger of getting shipwrecked and Menzies uh, has said many of these vessels were wrecked all over the place, Africa, North America, Australia, and these Chinese sailors lived as castaways and blended into the fabric of their new homelands. This is why, at least Gavin Menzies says, there is plenty of Chinese DNA mixed in with the genes of the local inhabitants, which can be classified as, quote, recently acquired DNA. But geneticists don't know if recently acquired means 15th century or what. Like everything about this book, lots of smoke. No fire. After Joman's fleet had done their work in Australia and New Zealand, they sailed back home. Like Hongbao's fleet, they still had Chinese goods to offload in the usual haunts in Indonesia and Malaysia. There they abandoned temporarily their explorations and put their traders' hats back on. The cargo holds were then in turn loaded up with spices and they headed back to China. Or did they? Joman made a last-minute decision after passing the Philippines to keep going in a northeasterly direction. 
For four months, 16,000 miles, Zhou Man's fleet sailed the winds and currents of the Pacific that took them to the coast of Canada and the United States. Menzies mentions a bunch of Chinese wrecks that were found. They even sailed into San Francisco Bay, into San Pablo Bay, and up the Sacramento River where the winds had blown them. There, many Chinese got off and ended up staying and setting up their own colony somewhere near the Russian River that runs through picturesque Sonoma and Mendocino counties. Who could blame them? It's gorgeous up there. And Gavin Menzies pointed out that by the 1870s, 75% of the farm laborers in that area were of Chinese descent. This Chinese colony from Jomon's fleet were the ones who brought rice cultivation to California, today one of the biggest cash crops in the state, as well as all the blue and white Ming porcelain that's you know found in fragments all over the place. The porcelain had always been thought to have come from you know later visiting Spanish galleons. From there, the current carried them along the California coast. They didn't stop in Claremont. They kept going, passing the Mexican coast, where another Chinese colony was established and where the Chinese brought lacquerware and textile dyeing techniques to the locals there. Then on to Central America and the northwest of South America, you know, to Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador. Then back to China, arriving in Nanjing, October 8, 1423. That was the story of Admirals Hongbao and Zhou Man. As for Zhou Wen, he sailed across the Atlantic from the Azores, again using the same winds as Columbus, reaching the French Caribbean islands of Dominica and Guadeloupe. Then from there, he sailed on to Puerto Rico, and this is where Gavin Menzies points to the Pizzagano map as proof that these particular islands had been visited by Zheng He's fleets. From Puerto Rico, the fleet sailed towards Florida, past the Bimini Islands in the Bahamas, where they ran aground and had to make emergency repairs, building the mysterious underwater Bimini Road, before heading up the Florida coast. There, they sailed north, passing Cape Canaveral, where five and a half centuries later, a Saturn V rocket would blast off into outer space and take three American astronauts to the surface of the moon. They went all the way up the coast, sailing into New York Harbor, a century before Verrazano, and then up to Newport, Rhode Island, where a mysterious lighthouse was built that still stands today. Gavin Menzies said there are 28 of these lighthouses or observatories scattered around the world where Zheng He's fleets had once made landfall. Now, one of the claims that Gavin Menzies makes, and he's extremely insistent about this, is that when Verrazano sailed into Narragansett Bay in 1524. He saw locals who were most deaf of Chinese descent. There were Chinese already living in North America when Verrazano landed. And after all his theories were shot down, Menzies always falls back to this one point. If Zheng He's fleets never sailed to the New World, how did all those Chinese get to the Northeast U.S.? In addition to this, Gavin Menzies also says that these sailors from Zhou Wen's fleet had left behind evidence of their presence all over Massachusetts. As crazy as this sounds, after the fleet finished exploring the coast of the U.S., they sailed north through the frozen Atlantic and split up, one part continuing north to the Arctic Circle, going around Greenland and then Iceland, and the other part of the fleet 
catching the current that would take them in a, about a month's time across the Atlantic to the Azores and then on to the Cape Verde Islands. The remaining admiral was the Grand Eunuch Yang Qing. He didn't go on as fantastical a voyage as Zhou Man, Zhou Wen, and Hong Bao, but it was a memorable one nonetheless. For on this voyage, Yang Qing solved the mystery that had confounded mariners from the time they first set sail onto the open ocean. How to figure out one's longitude. Now this is quite a claim, because traditionally this great feat of mankind was credited later to John Harrison and his chronometer in the 1700s. Well, again, no rock-solid evidence, and there are scholars in China who insist Chinese sailors had not been able to master this enigma before the Europeans. So a lot of claims are made, none of them minor or insignificant. One of Gavin Menzies' signature claims in this book is that the first European explorers to visit the New World all carried maps with them showing the way. The source of these maps were the cartographers and surveyors aboard Zheng He's fleets. This sixth voyage of Zheng He's fleet circumnavigated the world, passed through the Cape of Good Hope, the Strait of Magellan. They visited the New World in Australia, the extreme northern and southern regions of the globe. And though no evidence can be found that is conclusive to a degree that all scientists and historians can you know, generally agree, a lot of stuff is out there that suggests some of what Menzies claims might very well be true. Maybe it didn't happen exactly like how he said, but let's just say some questions remained unanswered. There's a lot of maps out there. The Pizzigano, the Frau Moro, the 1428 map that Dom Pedro, brother of Prince Henry the Navigator, received in Venice that showed the Pacific and North America, that they're all real, all sort of maybe, perhaps, give clues to Zheng He, but again, nothing for show. The only thing that historians can agree on, for the most part, is that the only map that survives that can be connected directly to Zheng He shows India and Africa only. If there was anything that told the whole story, logs, maps, any surviving records, they all got trashed and burned, as the legend goes, by someone within the Confucian cabal at the imperial court who, for their own reasons, did not want this information getting out. And to this day, nothing has come forth. No discovery in some archaeological excavation. Nothing. Nada. No missing logbooks of Zheng He's fleets discovered yet. The case for Zheng He's fleets discovering the world rests on the idea that while Zheng He was in Calicut, he met up with a Venetian adventurer and merchant named Niccolo de Canti. He was the first Italian merchant to make it to China since the time of Marco Polo in 1295. De Canti plays a starring role in the account given by Gavin Menzies. Like all these early travelers and adventurers, going all the way back to Zhang Qian during the Han Dynasty, de Canti's story is amazing. He goes on these incredible voyages, traveling disguised as a Muslim trader, and he sees the most amazing sights that the 15th century had to offer. And in 1444, like Marco Polo 150 years before, he sails back to Venice, writes a book about his travels, and lives happily ever after as a rich merchant. Now, according to Menzies, beyond the shadow of a doubt, and all historians can generally agree on this point, De Conti was traveling around all the usual haunts of the early 15th century spice trade. He most certainly saw 
Zheng He's treasure fleets, or at the very least heard of them. But Menzies goes a bit further. He maintains De Conti came on board one of their vessels in Calicut and actually sailed with them for three years on this magical mystery tour all over the world. When De Conti reached Venice, he hooked up with Venetian cartographer Fra Moro of the Monastery of St. Michael, which no longer stands there. It's today one of the largest cemeteries in Venice. With all the information from De Conti, as well as other Venetian traders who brought back bits and pieces of information, Fra Moro creates the 1459 Fra Moro map. Both this map, as well as the 1424 Pizzagano chart, discovered in 1953, make up two of the primary sources for the history Gavin Menzies presents. There's a lot of data, a lot of maybes, a lot of could-bes, but as I said, nothing that absolutely positively backs up the claims by Gavin Menzies in this book, 1421. As for Menzies' claim that Verrazano, Columbus, and others ran into Chinese or mixed Chinese when they landed in the New World, these maps carried by the great explorers who sailed after Zheng He that show things that weren't discovered yet, that shall remain a mystery, wrapped up in a riddle, inside an enigma. As for the other book, 1434, this one came out four years ago and discusses Zheng He's seventh and final voyage. This one, you recall, came between 1430 and 1433, made it all the way to Mombasa, Kenya on the Swahili coast. But Gavin Menzies says not so. He introduces a Chinese-Canadian scholar who maintains that an astronomer from Florence, Paolo de Toscanelli, had sent to Christopher Columbus two letters and a map that essentially serves as the playbook on how to take a shortcut to India by crossing the Atlantic. Toscanelli claims he got all this information from a visiting Chinese envoy in Venice. So the deal with Gavin Menzies' second book, and I won't dwell on it as much as the more famous first effort, is that Chinese from Zheng He's fleet sailed to Venice, Florence, and the Papal States and brought all these maps, all these works of intellectual pursuits by Chinese scientists and inventors and handed them off to their counterparts there, and you guessed it, this veritable gold mine of information brought to Europe by the Chinese provided the spark that filled in a lot of missing blanks that led to a spike in the knowledge pool in southern Europe. Now, to do this, the treasure fleet of Zheng He, rather than taking the long way, sailing around the Cape of Good Hope, they passed through a certain canal that linked the Red Sea with the Nile River. Like everything else associated with Gavin Menzies' books about Zheng He, you can get asphyxiated by all the smoke present, but alas, no fire. Not anywhere. Just a bunch of conclusions made on arguable data. The existence of this Red Sea, Nile, River Canal is strongly denied by scientists lined up on the other side of Gavin Menzies. By the way, Menzies maintains that Zheng He did not visit Hormuz that Hormuz was a nothing place back in that time, and that where the fleet actually went was to Cairo, one of the Muslim world's greatest centers of learning, not to mention a great center for the trade in perfumes, spices, and gold. And it wasn't just that China transferred all this knowledge to the West. It was the timing that mattered. Europe was now emerging from the Dark Ages, 1517, when 
Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg isn't too far away. The whole of Europe is on the cusp of great things when this incredible volume of knowledge from the Far East was hand-delivered to Italian scholars and officials. So that's the main premise for the second book, that it was the knowledge transferred from the Chinese during the seventh voyage of Zheng He that left Nanjing, January 19, 1431, that greased the skids, that allowed the breakthrough, that led to the Italian Renaissance. Nan board one of these vessels were all 50 million characters of the Yongle Da Dian, the Yongle Encyclopedia, the greatest compendium of human knowledge ever assembled to date. In this great work, of which very little survives to this day, contained the entirety of everything the Chinese had figured out in the past 2,000 years. Handing off the Yongle Encyclopedia to the Venetians probably would have been all that was necessary to light the rocket underneath the European Renaissance. Besides this, Zheng He's ambassadors brought nautical charts, maps, and navigational tools that allowed European scientists, naturalists, and explorers to take a great leap forward in their accumulation of knowledge. On this trip, the matter of figuring out longitude was perfected. Remember, it was Admiral Yang Qing who made the initial studies and provided a base to work from. So Menzies maintains unequivocally that Zheng He's navigators had been able to calculate latitude within 30 miles and longitude to within 3 degrees. Armed with this kind of knowledge, what Columbus achieved was not nearly as incredible as if he didn't have him. Now this time it's Admiral Hongbao who gets the orders from Zheng He, who was already at the end of his life. Rather than dying in Calicut, like I mentioned last time, Menzies suggests that around 1433, Zheng He vanished and in fact sailed on to North America and settled somewhere in uh, Asheville, North Carolina home of the Vanderbilt Mansion. As far as igniting the Renaissance goes, the case rests on evidence discovered that was written by Paolo Toscanelli of Florence. He was a contemporary of Alberti and Brunelleschi and the Medicis. Toscanelli's letters reveal that Chinese had visited the Venetian Pope, Eugene IV. He gave all kinds of details that Menzies seizes on, but these accounts are suspected to have come from De Conti, who may or may not have made these journeys with Zheng He's fleet on the, on the sixth voyage. If you needed an ideal representative to reveal 2,000 years of wisdom and knowledge to, Toscanelli would have been a great candidate. He was an educated man, familiar with science, mathematics, astronomy, cosmology. So Paolo Toscanelli is another in a long line of maybe, maybe nots. A lot of these drawings and descriptions of innovative technologies was among the treasure trove supposedly seen by Toscanelli. Gavin Menzies says what followed in the wake of these uh, revelations from the Chinese were the flood of fantastic drawings from the likes of you know, Leonardo da Vinci and others who received their inspiration for many of their inventions from you know, this Chinese information. There's a lot more to it, but that's the main idea behind the book 1434, the year a magnificent Chinese fleet sailed to Italy and ignited the Renaissance. The title says it all. And like the first book, 1421, it makes all kinds of amazing discoveries and draws very provocative conclusions that seem based on real evidence. Nothing seems implausible. The Chinese science and technology in the early Ming years was indisputably the greatest in the world. 
There is nothing Gavin Menzies says, nor any conclusions drawn, that could be considered far-fetched. There's no aliens that visited the planet Earth or werewolves or vampires, nothing like that. But did they do it? It's a war out there, folks. You get on any search engine and put in the right keywords, and there's quite a dialogue going on right now. You have Gavin Menzies' websites that contain all the detail you'd ever want to see. There are naysayers, both amateur and expert, who have intelligently and methodically picked apart everything Menzies says. And the usual chit-chat back and forth between the opposing sides of this ongoing debate is always great reading, especially when it falls deep in the gutter. And you can see many people around the world have these visceral feelings about whether Zheng He actually achieved all that Gavin Menzies gives him credit for. The emotion on both sides, those for and those against what's contained in the two books, 1421 and 1434, are lively and raucous. This is one of those things where you can do a lot of amateur sleuthing and draw your own conclusions. There's no shortage of materials that analyze everything about everything Zheng He did or didn't do between 1405 and 1433. But this we do know. Zheng He was a real historic person. He made these voyages, at least seven that we know of. He was a major mover and shaker during the years of Zhu Di, the Emperor Yongle, a period when eunuchs like Zheng He were most influential at court and dominated court politics of the day. His voyages had a major ripple effect in the creation of certain cities and towns along the trade routes. His life and his legend are intertwined with the Chinese culture in many of these places. There are temples built in reverence to him. Many of the great and ancient cities from Malacca to Mombasa have strong, vibrant, overseas Chinese communities whose roots go all the way back to the time of these seven voyages. Like the Silk Roads, these voyages were also conduits for the exchange of knowledge and new ideas. And I think it's with this that we should thank Zheng He, Hongbao, Yang Qing, Zhou Man, Zhou Wen, Wang Jinghong, Ma Huan, Fei Xin, and many others for their collective contribution to the development of mankind and taking part in a period when so much information was flowing back and forth. It's nearly impossible to tell who knew what when or who got it from whom. Maybe Gavin Menzies didn't get it right. Maybe he did. Everything will be revealed in time. But whatever the case may be, he did shine a few bright lights on Zheng He and the other great admirals of these voyages, and he allowed these great historic personages, through the massive worldwide readership of these books and the awareness they created, to come out and take a bow and to become known by people around the world who might not otherwise have heard of them. So I guess we can thank Mr. Menzies for that. So let's bring this to an end. There is a lot to tell about this story. Over the past three episodes, all I did was scratch the surface and offer up the main points. With this and anything you hear on the China History Podcast, if anything piques your interest, trust me, there are voluminous sources of further info on every topic. In these podcasts, I'm just giving you the glazed caramel topping on top of a rich creme brulee underneath. 
I'll give you the sugar, but if you want more, there's plenty of custard richness underneath waiting to be explored. So that's all I have to say about Ma Sanbao, Admiral Zheng He. Next time, we're back with something new and exciting. And then Labor Day weekend, we'll have Mr. Ray Harris Jr. of the History of World War II podcast live and in person here in good old Claremont. It's been white hot here in Claremont the past week and no relief in sight. 40s, day in and day out. That's Celsius, my friends. Hopefully things will cool down a little for Ray's visit. I guess that's it, ladies and gentlemen. As it always seems to be, this is your humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, wishing you all the very best, and I hope to see you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.